How many ways can a flood kill? The massive quick killers are tsunamis from the sea. Also dramatic, also lethal, are flash floods. These appear in an instant with raging torrents and grinding debris. On the other hand, gently rising waters, without any visual drama, can hunt you down like a slow, silent killer. Today we begin with a ladder, Lake Baringo in Kenya. A seven-year pattern of unusually heavy rainfall on top of deforestation made the waters there overflow slowly, inexorably, radically altering the land and waterscape. The banks were inundated inch by inch, farm fields turned to swamps, peninsulas became islands. Unsuspecting life forms lost their habitats. If you happened to be a giraffe, even a long neck wasn't enough to keep your head above water. But I'm just speaking figuratively there, as you are about to see. Giraffe can't swim. When they're on this tiny island, you know, they're stuck. There's nowhere to go. And the island was so small, and it was getting smaller all the time as the water was rising, they're running out of food. There just isn't enough food on the island to feed those eight massive giraffes. And they're not fond of boats either, which presented a predicament for the humans hoping to help them off this island. I'm Marcus Smith. On this episode of Constant Wonder, lending a hand to animals in need with empathy and ingenuity. We're going to be talking about a few different species caught in some awful binds. It goes without saying that animals go without saying, which is only to say... They can't describe for you what they need. Don't make much of that Dr. Doolittle stuff about animals talking to people, but maybe there is a way to at least think like animals. Successful rescues often depend not just on having a heart, but on getting inside an animal's head. Amy Vitali was among the photographers who pointed cameras at those stranded giraffes, documenting everything that happened there. We're going to get back to that in a little bit. She's a photojournalist and has documented several missions of mercy around the world saving animals. She's dressed up in a panda suit, covered in panda urine. There was a good reason for that, presumably. And she has befriended some threatened elephants, along with their neighbors, the humans, humans with initiative and resourcefulness, who have given vital support to more than just the elephants in their custody. Let's get some detail about this situation first at the Reteti Animal Sanctuary, founded by the local citizens who had a whole new vision for how to intervene. In the past, what was happening was that if an animal was orphaned, they would be put in an airplane, usually, and sent to another sanctuary in southern Kenya, which is doing wonderful work. But they also understood that those elephants would never have the hope or chance to be returned to their own landscape to possibly one day reunite with their own herds again. So by creating a sanctuary in these really remote places in northern Kenya, now they have the opportunity when they get release back to the wild, that hopefully one day they'll have the chance to meet up with their own families and at least be in the same landscapes that they came from. The folks at Reteti pride themselves on being the first community-owned, community-run elephant sanctuary, but the scope of what they're doing there goes beyond just the animals, something more expansive, more holistic is going on. If you went back 30 years, this place actually was suffering from a lot of poaching. You couldn't find elephants or rhinos or basically much wildlife there because it had all been poached. But they had enough they began to understand that when you take the keystone species out of an ecosystem, everything starts to suffer, and they were actually suffering. And so they came together, and the leaders had this idea that they wanted to create a place where wildlife could coexist with them, that actually their lives would be better with the wildlife because it brings in tourism, 
it brings in so many things to the ecosystem itself. Like there was this understanding. And it was at the Rateti Animal Sanctuary that a young elephant named Shaba found herself. She was in bad shape when she arrived, and you could say not just physically, but I'll go ahead and say emotionally. I think that's fair. She had witnessed the shooting of her own mother by poachers. She was very violent, as any creature would be when they saw their mother killed in front of them. She was traumatized and angry. She was very aggressive. Even for me, it took about a year because the sound, I think the metallic sound of my camera and the shutter, I'd have to stay pretty far away and be very aware of her. But for the keepers who had to be with her and feed her every three hours in the beginning, she just tried to charge people. And even though she was just a one-year-old elephant, they are huge, even at one-year-old. So... I believe that she sent two people to hospital in the very beginning. The dangerous thing was actually that she wouldn't accept the milk bottle. And they had to figure out something quickly because she would die without that milk. And so one brave keeper uh, had the idea to put these tires together and um, wire them together and then get in the middle of those tires to try to get her to accept the bottle. And she did. And from that moment on, it was extraordinary because she knew then that the keepers were there to protect her. And then her behavior really changed in that she became the matriarch of the herd. So every time a new baby arrived, She would smell it, know it was there, come rushing in and come and comfort it with her trunk across because it would be in an enclosure. The whole other herd, you know, all the babies behind her would come rushing to kind of greet the baby. And then she kept the whole herd. Once the babies were all integrated into the herd, she would really be like a mother. She would teach them how to find the best food. She would comfort them. She would check them and put them in place if they were becoming aggressive to one another. She taught them how to get out of big ditches. Basically, she would teach them whatever a less experienced pachyderm can learn from one that's been around the block a few times. All this while, the elephant's keepers were also on a learning curve to do their jobs well, Many of these workers at the sanctuary are women like Naomi, included in the short documentary Shaba by Amy Vitali. Naomi wasn't a trained professional, but she brought skill and a certain intuition to the job. Naomi loves to sing lullabies to the baby elephants. She's done it from the first one that arrived back in 2016 until today. And the remarkable thing is to see how the elephants react to her. They definitely feel her energy, and I think they like those songs. The keepers actually realized, and they would tell me that that this elephant taught them so much because they were new at being keepers of elephants. They weren't, you know, exactly sure of all the things that needed to happen. And this elephant, Shaba, taught them so much about love and how to take care of them. And it was just this beautiful relationship that was built over the span of four years while she was there at the sanctuary. I mentioned earlier, this is the first of its kind community-run animal sanctuary in the region. The staff at Riteti can't boast of any professional certification or scientific training, but maybe this alone has actually broadened the horizon of potentially positive outcomes. Amy Vitali sees, for one thing, the social importance and visibility of these first ever indigenous women elephant keepers in all of Africa. And it was interesting because in the beginning, the community did not think there was a place for women in the workplace. 
they thought that women belonged at home. And now the success of these women keepers is unlocking all these new possibilities and setting this very powerful example for girls who are hoping to pursue their dreams. It's changing how the community relates to elephants, but also how they relate to one another. And so school children who have never seen an elephant before or who were afraid of elephants visit Ricchetti and see these elephants up close. And they also see women working with these elephants. So they then realize that they can grow up to be anything. It's just a beautiful story to witness. A photojournalist spends a lot of time behind the lens, but that doesn't mean you're not part of the picture when you find yourself in the middle of it all. And Vitaly worked hard to get to know her animal subjects up close and to understand them. But that presupposes getting to know some of them individually, and that's not always easy for a surprising reason. The elephants, once they reach a certain size, all start to look very similar. And the only way you can separate and tell them apart is by their behavior, by their personalities. And that's how I grew to know who was who. The elephants got to recognize Amy, too. The process took weeks, months, and years. A mutual trust grew. I suspect it's the same sort of dance if you shoot a documentary about humans. Rapport just doesn't come overnight. It took me a long time to gain the trust of the herd. They are as emotional and intelligent as any human being. Even an elephant that I had been there the moment it was rescued. And then I left and returned home and three months later came back. And that elephant named Nadasoit remembered my smell, came rushing out of this forest where she was browsing and came to greet me and was trumpeting and, you know, touching her trunk to my face, untying my shoelaces. She remembered. And after you spend enough time with these creatures, you begin to understand who they are. From her experiences at the Rattetti Sanctuary, Amy Vitali carries more than just the memory of her own personal encounter with elephants. Shaba, her documentary about this place, is a multi-layered painting of interspecies relationships, yes, but also of intraspecies community. Humans with elephants, but also elephants with elephants and humans with humans. I have to say there are some fairly obvious parallels here to our recent episode of Constant Wonder about rescuing the baby orca Springer. Rescuing a lone specimen in isolation of community, that's narrow thinking. And in some ways, it's probably not even wise to try that without nurturing healthy interconnections all the way around. It is a story about the unique bonds that the people taking care of this elephant and in fact, this elephant taking care of them too, that you start to understand our interconnectedness and the intelligence and the, the emotional connections and bonds are deep between people and, and these creatures they coexist with. Let's consider now those stranded giraffes, so as not to leave them stranded in this episode. Amy Vitali documented their rescue, too. The emergency operation was only possible because of the construction of a giraffe. Yes, I said giraffe. Apparently, that's what you call a giraffe raft. As much as giraffes abhor the thought of ever swimming, they're also not keen on boating, not even if it's to save their lives. So if you can't coax a giraffe onto a giraffe, you must tranquilize it. David O'Connor is president of Save Giraffes Now and a senior researcher for National Geographic. He found himself at Lake Baringo in Kenya toward the end of 2020, sitting on the neck of a two-ton giraffe that had been tranquilized. For most of us, that isn't even a -a once-in-a-lifetime experience. When you tranquilize a giraffe to treat it or to try to move it or save it, they don't do very well when they're sedated. When you tranquilize them, they, they fall over and they kind of fall asleep. And then 
there's very high risk to them. And the risk of tranquilizing a giraffe has something to do with maybe they choke on their own saliva, I've heard. Yeah, yeah, that's one of the risks. Um, and also, unfortunately, they, their brains can basically explode or they can have a massive hemorrhage. I mean, if you can imagine a giraffe, they're built to stand up straight, you know, 18 or 19 feet tall. So, you know, if they're horizontal, they're not engineered for that. They're engineered, you know, to pump the blood up 19 feet to their head. So when they go on their side and they're semi-unconscious, they lose control of that blood flow or their, you know, what they have in their neck. And that's where the risk comes in. You have to immediately put the reversal drug in. So they're kind of waking up when you put the reversal in. And the reason you have to sit on the neck is because they're waking up, they're trying to raise their head. And it's amazing, there's a two-ton animal. But if you just by sitting on the neck near the head, it will stay laying down. Can we go back for just a moment now and recap the dire situation that these giraffes were in? Amy Vitali explains that the risks went beyond just the risk of starvation. The rains are torrential and they're not stopping. And these landscapes, which were once grasslands, have been turned into lakes. And there was a peninsula where these giraffes were living and they got marooned because the peninsula turned into an island and they were going to die um, because they had shrinking habitat to browse. They were living with poisonous snakes and hippos. Snakes, hippos, have you noticed in zoos, hippos and giraffes never in the same enclosure? They don't belong there. I mean, giraffe need space to live. And the other thing giraffe can't do is they can't swim. So when they're on, on this tiny island, you know, they're stuck. There's nowhere to go. And the island was so small, maybe, maybe an acre, maybe two, and it was getting smaller all the time as the water was rising, they're running out of food, especially in the dry season. There just isn't enough food on the island to feed those eight massive giraffes. And the other thing that was happening, unfortunately, was sometimes there might be a calf born, and you know they were then killed by one of the, the predators that could easily access the island. You know The giraffe had nowhere to run away, so they could be you know, by a big snake or a crocodile. Now, situate us this whole story in the the problem with endangered giraffes generally in a place like Kenya. You know, not a lot of people realize that giraffe, unfortunately, the story with them isn't a happy one. Um, There's only about 100,000 giraffe left in Africa. You know, you hear a lot about what's happening with elephants, say. Well, there's about 400,000 elephants left. So there's four times as many elephants in Africa as there are giraffes. And three of the four species of giraffe are endangered or worse. And the giraffe that we were trying to rescue from this island and actually reintroduce uh, to the Western Rift Valley, there's only about maybe 3,000 of those type of giraffe left in all of Africa. When you're doing a rescue operation like this, you're concerned about every single animal. Absolutely. And, you know, we don't undertake something like this sort of willy-nilly. Um, you know, we, we evaluate the risks as best we can. And obviously, these giraffes, unfortunately, stuck in the island. They, they were going to die eventually. So we knew the risks involved of trying to rescue them were worth it. And if you imagine, even though there were eight giraffes on this, on this island initially, in Kenya as a whole, there's only 800 of this type of giraffe. So that's actually 1% of the entire Kenyan population. So, it's, I mean, even though it's only eight, it sounds like a few giraffe. It's actually quite a significant number. The topography there, this huge lake, it takes a lot of time to get across it. The boating, just to get out to find the giraffes, I understand it was about a two-hour trip, and, and the lake wasn't there always. Right, exactly. When the giraffe were first brought to this place uh, called Ruko, the area where they were was actually a peninsula sticking out into the lake. So the plan was, let's reintroduce these giraffes. They had disappeared from that area 70 years ago. They'd been wiped out by over-hunting and poaching. So the community came together and said, let's try to reintroduce our beloved giraffes, bring them back home. So they brought in eight giraffes onto a peninsula where they thought they could protect them well. The lake had other ideas, and it rose about 40 or 50 feet. Just when we started to do the rescue, the water levels were even rising perhaps six inches a day. So these giraffes were stuck on this island in the middle of a lake. You're right, it was about an hour from the nearest shoreline, um, about a mile or so 
and they couldn't get off it. They can't swim. They were absolutely trapped. Now, the technicalities of getting giraffes across water, you went yeah. for some kind of, or the community went for a kind of a, a raft system, but it, can't, it couldn't just be any old kind of raft. Custom made, I understand. Exactly. This had never been done before, ever, in terms of trying to save giraffe from an island. So we have to think about how can we get, you know, a two-ton, nearly 20-foot animal safely off an island when they don't swim. And we've no idea what kind of sailors they are. So, you know, we went back and forth with the community and they're, you know, they, were, they had great engineering skills. You know, we thought through the design together and that, that's what it was. It was basically a raft. It was made of 60 metal oil drums that were all welded together. And then there was a platform where we put packed earth down and then the sides were maybe 12 feet high. The sides, that's a very interesting detail there. You're trying to make them high enough just to contain it. That's just a big fence. Right, exactly. Because if it was just, if there was no fence, the giraffe would likely just slip off the side, you know, because they're not used to being on a boat. So when we put them on a boat and some of them, we, we put a hood over them, you know, the way sometimes if you have a horse or something, you might put a hood on to try to keep them calm. That's what we did with, with some of the giraffe we rescued. And, you know, they could just wander off the side and that, you know, that would be tragic. So we had to have a, a wall that was high enough that they couldn't reach over with their legs or get their legs stuck or kick out of it. It was very, very, very nerve wracking for that first rescue because we didn't know necessarily that the raft would stay afloat for the entire mile journey. I believe you when you say it could be nerve wracking to do that. But I'm thinking from the giraffe's perspective, a panic attack, could that kill an animal? It can. Animals can get so stressed that they do shut down. But thankfully, that didn't happen in the case of, of our giraffe. And I think one of the reasons was is that the community didn't want these giraffes, you know, to die. So in the dry season, they would bring them food to keep them alive when there was no other natural food available. So these giraffes were a little bit used to people, more used to people than wild, wild giraffes. And some of the rangers lived on that island 24-7 make sure those giraffes were safe. So I think that helped us a little bit with the giraffe not becoming too, too, too stressed when it came to the move. Did you really have to resort to tranquilizers, though? I mean, I heard that the team first tried to entice them onto the raft with a little bit of food. Yes, and that was actually working uh, at the beginning. We started with mangoes, and then we, we tried other treats, and the giraffe were going for it. We'd move the food closer and closer, and they get close and get used to it. But unfortunately, then the rainy season came, and the, the, the entire island sprang into life with lots of leaves and lots of food. So we were thwarted in that attempt because there's food everywhere. But we did manage, after the first two rescues, to um, bring some of the nine giraffes that we rescued. We were able to do it just by using food. They weren't spooked then, or at least not spooked away. No, I was absolutely astounded. Um, one of the giraffes, uh, the only male on the island, uh, Ilbar Ilbarnati, he was so greedy. He, he went onto the barge and he was feeding on the barge. You know, we left it there for several weeks and he was getting used to it. And in fact, he'd bully some other people away from the food. And um, so one day we decided, okay, when he's on, let's move. And it didn't even uh, phase him one bit. In fact, he kept feeding the entire way across the journey for the hour long it took to get to the other side. Well, hungry giraffe or hooded giraffe, this whole business of physically coaxing or wrangling these animals onto that oil drum pontoon platform, that was just one consideration. Another detail, very important one, this had to be done animal by animal, one by one. None of the cozy company of a Noah's Ark. What I'm getting at here is you need to know, giraffes really, really, really don't like being separated from their group. What you don't want to do with giraffes, you know, they're, they're naturally a herding animal. When you're moving them from one place to another, you don't want to leave an individual alone because then the stress can really get to them. So for the very first one, that we moved, and then all the way to the very last one. We had to be very careful that none of them were alone for a long period of time. We wanted to make sure that at least there were two together so that they could kind of comfort each other. 
Tell me about the moment of tranquilization of the animal. The first one taken, Asiwa was her name, I believe. Yeah, so Asiwa uh, was the first one we moved. And, you know, as I mentioned, it was very, very nerve-wracking because at that stage, we didn't even know if the barge would, would fully work. So Asiwa, unfortunately, had become trapped on a sliver of island. Um, oh, gosh, you know, maybe 200 feet by 100 foot wide and very low lying, you know, with water kind of lapping at her, at her hooves. And we had hoped that we could tempt her on with food. That didn't work. You know, she was very skittish at this stage, being trapped alone. So the decision made was to dart her. And the plan was to dart her very close to the barge. We cleared an area. You know, we thought, let's dart her close to the barge. Hopefully she'll fall over there. And then we can walk around to the barge, you know, very smoothly and easily. Well, of course, she was having absolutely none of that. And when we darted her, she actually ran all the way to the, as far away from the barge as you can go on the sliver of island. And thankfully, we were able to get her down just, I'm not even exaggerating, maybe three, two or three feet from the edge of the water. If she had fallen over and fallen asleep in the water, that would have been a disaster. What's the next move after darting her after she goes down? She went down in kind of thick, very dense brush. So there was no natural path. There was just acacia thorns and bushes everywhere. Couldn't even see her until you were nearly right beside her. And I was actually the first one to get her when she went down. And so I immediately, she, her head, she was trying to bring her head up. So I immediately sat on her neck to try to, you know, control her head. And then she'd relax a little bit. And I tried to put a covering on her eyes while the rest of the team came. And I remember, you know, just after I arrived at the draft, I got this big push into the side. And it was the wildlife vet who was putting the reversal into a Siwa to reverse the tranquilizer. So she'd start waking up. And then at that point, once the reversal is in, then we, we, we put the hood on, you know, to try to calm her. We put some earplugs, actually socks in her ears, you know, to muffle the sound. And then we put some guide ropes around sort of where her neck meets her legs at the shoulder area so that we could guide her through when we started walking her. So is somebody actually reminded, don't forget to bring the socks? Yeah, well, it's really funny you say that because we didn't have earmuffs that morning. And somebody said, does anybody have earmuffs? And everyone was like, no. And so this guy, um, George, one of the senior guys said to, said to a guy, George, well, George, we have to use your socks. So he had to take off his socks and we used his socks. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Asiwa comes uh, awake, uh, maybe a bit groggy, yeah. and she's mm-hmm. got socks in her ears and she's got a hood over her yeah. eyes. Take us through yeah. the acacia back to that barge. Yeah, yeah. She's got George's socks in her ears and... You know, if, so if you're a Siwa, she probably thinks we're predators, you know, so this isn't a very comfortable position for her, and we want to get her on the barge as soon as we can. And, you know, it was very, very thick brush, and so we had to try to get her up, and she was slow in getting up. We kind of had to help her get her head up, and then she sat on her haunches a little bit, and then finally she stood up. And at that point then... We had to try to walk her through this thick brush. And if you imagine, there's no trails or anything. And there's, you know, inch-long acacia thorns in this underbrush. And sometimes we even have to, you know, cut down bushes to make room for her. And we're trying to get her through, you know, there's some tall branches, so hopefully her head will go under and things like that. So it was very, very challenging. That first 15 minutes, it felt much longer. 15 minutes or so of trying to move a Siwa. But once she hit a trail, she knew... Her demeanor totally changed. It was absolutely incredible. It was just like walking a dog on a Sunday afternoon. She just walked very calmly the rest of the way when she hit a trail she knew and straight onto the barge. No bother. Is there a sigh of relief that goes up from the whole crew when she's on that barge and the gate closes behind her? Yeah, it was huge. Um, you know, because it was challenging that first initial walk. Um, you know, with all the risks I just mentioned, plus if she could run, run off into the water or bang her head or something. So the relief was absolutely massive. And, you know, we knew if we messed up at this stage, this was the first draft, the whole operation would be shut down. There's no way we'd be able to rescue the rest of the draft. The wildlife authorities and everyone would be like, okay, maybe the risk isn't worth it. We can't safely rescue these giraffes. So they were floated across the water one by one, back to solid ground. At first, they numbered eight. Around Christmas time, a baby arrived, making nine. 
somebody named it Noel. You know, I kind of wish I could have been on the crew, on the team helping out there. Don't give me sit-on-the-neck duty. That's not for me. I, I fancy myself holding up the fence, the scaffolding around the giraffe. We're all being towed by motorboat across Lake Baringo. Just show me a mango and I walk right onto that giraffe. Save giraffes now. The organization helped to fund the new sanctuary for them. It's more than 4,000 acres, plenty of room to roam. And the plan is, as the population increases, they'll release a couple at a time to go out and repopulate the surrounding area. But how are they getting along right now? I was there in December of 2021, and they're all looking amazing on the mainland. They're all together as a group. They're feeding, and, you know, they're so happy. They, they look healthier. Their coats are shinier. Their tick load is down. And they've all put on weight. I think like we all have during COVID, but they've all put on <laughs> weight, which is <laughs> which is a good sign, you know, because they're they're probably accessing a lot of different types of food that they didn't have on the island. I think you'll really want to see the amazing images of this adventure. Our website offers you a couple of links to photos of this whole story. Amy Vitali took some of them, another link taking you to David O'Connor's photos. It's really something to behold. Pop on over at your next chance to byuradio.org slash constant wonder. Amy Vitale's work over the years has pulled her into situations of rewilding, which is the ultimate aim of many a rescue mission. Just a quick example. In China, a female panda is born in captivity, which leads to a first-ever attempt to release such an animal in the wild. So, to be accurate, completely accurate, this isn't rewilding, it's just wilding. And frankly, I don't know which would be more difficult. Vitaly found herself in China doing much more than just taking pictures or shooting video. All of the pandas that get sent to the wild... They can never see humans. So we all had to dress up in these crazy panda costumes, which were scented with panda urine. And Uh. you get used to it. It's not that bad. They're vegetarian for the most part. Cosplay in a smelly panda suit in China. Uh, That's not fair to put it that way. But this whole experience was just about as far away as you could ever imagine Vitaly being given where she started her photojournalistic career. You were not always involved in documenting and telling stories about human work with animal life, with wildlife, with uh, rescuing uh, orphaned elephants and such. There was a time when you, that was the furthest thing from your mind. You had, you had no idea you were going there. So I'd love to hear a little of your backstory and, and what led to this big shift in your career. The first decade of my professional work was covering wars, the horrors of the world. And I, after about 10 years of that, realized this profound truth that all these stories I had been telling about people and the human condition always had this backdrop. And the backdrop of each and every one was the natural world. In some cases, it was the scarcity of basic resources like water. In others, it was a changing climate and droughts and the loss of fertile lands. But always, there was the demands that humanity placed on the ecosystem that really drove those conflicts and human suffering. And I really began to realize that my stories should include the environment and wildlife and the natural world. So today, my work is not just about people, and I don't even consider myself a wildlife filmmaker or photographer either. My path is about telling stories about that interconnection, how small and deeply interwoven our world really is, and that once you start to understand how all of these creatures we coexist with, you know, how we're all in this together. This is our shared little life raft. It's like this light bulb just went off. And I began to see that without talking about those creatures 
and their own demise, it's like I was missing a huge piece of the story. It was almost like the war stories are the stories that come at the end. Right now, we have the chance to tell the stories about this trajectory that we're on and that we have the possibility of changing the end story if we really make the creatures we coexist with a priority in all of our lives. Is there a specific chapter or maybe a specific place, a time in your life when you started thinking differently about your focus in journalism uh, in relation to the natural world, this this big picture of the environmental context uh, that, that now informs what you do? Basically, it began in Guinea-Bissau. I lived in a village called Dembeljimpora for six months and shared a mud hut with uh, four women and all their children. And I, you know, gathered firewood, I gathered water, and I really began to see how the majority of people on this planet have this intricate understanding and connection with nature. And they actually had this beautiful respect and reverence for the natural world. And that was the place that I probably, you know, understood that when the dry season came, people went hungry and they, you know, did not have running water, no electricity, no health care. Um, but nature was their supermarket. It was their their pharmacy. It was everything to them. That's the first moment. And in fact, you know, I have one story the day I was leaving, you know, I was with everybody. We were then, you know, eating together. The 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 sunsets were underneath the sea of stars. And one of the boys named Alio looks up at this beautiful full moon and asks me, Amy, do you have a moon in America? And I it just I I can't I can't forget him. And every time I see a full moon I think of him because I've thought about the moon as a metaphor a lot. It is this collective third eye. It shows us our common identity without borders and it gives us this sense of oneness, this reminder that we are all tied together in this intricate web. It's only to be expected in this line of work that you're going to be covering some heartbreak, which happened when Amy Vitale found herself covering the story of the death of the last male northern white rhino, an animal named Sedan. This came about, uh, oh, about a year after she had decided to shift her focus in her career. Late 2009, the caretakers of four northern white rhinos in Europe decided it was time for a big change. It was a critical juncture if this species was going to be preserved. They flew them from a zoo, the Jirokralov Zoo in the Czech Republic, back to Africa, thinking that the open air and the, you know, the, the plains and somehow being back in Africa might stimulate them and, and that they would begin breeding. But it didn't work out. And so back in 2018, that was the moment that the last male northern white rhino died. The thing that I remember was how quiet it was. And there was Jojo, who was one of Sudan's keepers, who went to say goodbye. And he just put his head on Sudan's head and Sudan kind of perked up and leaned his head back into Jojo's. And I remember all you could hear was the rain falling and the muffled sobbing of all the keepers. And one bird just almost screaming. But other than that, it was completely silent. And usually there's so much kind of ambient natural noise in these wild spaces. And it just really struck me as if every, every creature almost knew But even with that story, there is this hopeful twist. Now there is a team, the biorescue team, 
and it's this international consortium of scientists and conservationists and governments who are on track right now for saving that species using science. So they're creating viable embryos and also stem cells, and we may actually see a baby northern white rhino on the ground soon. Back to the workers at the Rattetti Animal Sanctuary. Remember how they were changed by the work they did? Well, Amy Vitali had a similar transformation of her own. I needed to make my work about not just the human condition and not just the beautiful wildlife. My goal is to find stories of hope that exist all over the planet where communities and people, small groups of individuals are coming together to do something to change this path we're on, that it is not all hopeless, that if you actually start seeking out the hopeful stories, you begin to understand that we all just need to get more engaged. What's very clear to me is that in order to pursue these kinds of aspirations, Vitaly turns a very careful eye and points her camera toward very specific stories about very specific people, animals, and communities. Here's a case in point. One of the keepers had a wound on her leg that she was ignoring because she was so busy. And she kept going on and on with her daily work. And one of the elephants, named Borgus, went over and took some mud from the mud bath and came over and started packing her leg. And then he went over again to the mud bath and did it again. And then on the third time, she started to wonder and realize that this elephant knew she had a wound. And that is how elephants treat their own wounds. They pack them with mud. And she went to the doctor and he said, that elephant saved your life. Your wound is going septic. You could have died. She had to go on antibiotics. And they've all said this to me before. They've said, it's not us saving the elephants. The elephants are really saving us. Our guests in today's episode of Constant Wonder, a contract photographer for National Geographic, Amy Vitale. She's a filmmaker and photojournalist. Also, David O'Connor, the president of Save Giraffes Now. He's a senior researcher for National Geographic. We've got a related bonus story for you about coaxing a rewilded, wounded, terrified panda down from its perch some 70 feet above the ground. That's coming up next. This episode was produced by Tenery Taylor and Paige Crumperman-Darrington with support from our sound design team at BYU Broadcasting. I'm Marcus Smith, host of Constant Wonder, which is a production of BYU Radio. One thing that I think people are really surprised by is how smart pandas are. Smarter than most dogs I've ever met. They can pick up training really quickly. Female pandas are a lot smarter. They tend to be a lot smarter than the male pandas when they're young. Um, males are really silly and playful, and females are um, very uh, determined and smart. They pick up training really quickly. The director of conservation at the L.A. Zoo, his name is Jake Owens, for this bonus feature on Constant Wonder, I got to talking with him on the matter of rewilding and rescues and such. When we were speaking with Amy Vitale, we made kind of a passing glance on the whole topic of panda conservation. I thought you would enjoy hearing a little bit more on that topic. Before getting his appointment at the L.A. Zoo, Jake Owens was a researcher at the Chengdu Research Base of Giant Panda Breeding. That's in Sichuan Province. And he was working to introduce captive-born pandas into the wild, like the panda Chen Chen. Now, at this particular institution, I need to let you know that Jake was not guided to make any kind of attempt to disguise himself, as Amy Vitale did when she donned that urine-scented panda suit. So I asked him, why no costume? It's kind of counterintuitive. 
A lot of people think if you're going to raise animals from release, then you have to have no contact and you have to avoid any potential habituation um, so that they can go out in the wild and avoid humans and all these things. And that's true for some species. But the benefit that we see and the, the kind of overlying thought of this project is we don't want to have to rely on um, females to raise cubs to release on their own because a female panda can typically only raise one cub every two years. And so if we could have uh, three researchers or four researchers um, hand raise with uh, assistance with their mother two or three or four cubs at a time, and you had a few teams of that, your productivity for releasing these animals would be a lot higher. The challenge is in the question of post-release success. So for any reintroduction program, one of the, the most important factors is how can you monitor them after they go out into the wild? Because you don't know if they're successful or not if you can't monitor them. You don't know what challenges they might be facing. Um, you have to do a lot of research to try to figure that out. And especially where giant pandas live, it's really challenging. I mean, I've worked all over the world, and the most challenging habitat I've worked in was really dense bamboo montane habitats where, where pandas live. Uh, even the GPS collars that are super expensive, if they get down into a valley, you can't find them. The signal doesn't get out. And so how do you track the challenges that they're facing, their health and all these things, if you um, can't actually go out there and get close to them? The answer was, well, if we can get these pandas to really trust a few people and maintain that relationship over time, then they'd be able to take blood samples, which you can't do without anesthetizing most wild animals. Um, we'd be able to change GPS collars or fix them if they needed or you know, make them larger when, when the panda grows. We'd also be able to make detailed observations up close. So that kind of explains why Jay Owens felt it was just fine for Chen Chen to get to know him well, that it might even be essential for her to do that actually because pandas can tell one person from another person by their voice and by their smell. And all of that could help her to accept whatever monitoring or assistance she would require after her relocation into the wild. With Chen Chen, I would go out with a radio uh, receiver, because she has a radio collar and GPS collar on, and I'd be able to find where she is in this really dense forest. And I would call to her, call to her. And if I had somebody who was maybe unknown, she wouldn't come out. Um, so she could smell them or hear them. Uh, even with me, and she, you know, I hand-raised her as, as part of the, a small team. She would take a long time to come out um, of the forest. Once I stopped being a day-to-day -day worker, I you know, started working in the office more, and I'd come out maybe once a month. It would take me 45 minutes for her to come out because she knew who I was, but the circumstances were different. And so it would take a really long time to coax her out. And as soon as she was done you know, taking blood or changing GPS collars, she would run back into the forest. The relationship that both he and a fellow researcher named Shabi developed with Chen Chen, well, it actually paid off when she got into a very dangerous fix. We're going to hear about that. Owens was not sure that he'd be able to help at first. He says about this time period that it was... Definitely one of the low points of my life. The team of us hand-raised her, and you grow really extremely attached, and we, you know, putting eight hours a day out in the field with her and getting buttoned by bugs and, and kind of experiencing these things with her. And she went out and um, all of our monitoring was going really well. And she instantly, the day after she uh, left the enclosure, headed straight up to the best bamboo up at the top of the, the mountain uh, where we were working at the time and was eating bamboo shoots that were up there. And it was just an amazing thing, you know, four kilometers, almost in a straight line up the ridge to get to the best bamboo. That kind of innate... Uh, behavior is incredible. You know, we really didn't expect that kind of of amazing innate skill. I was back in the states and got a call that uh, she was injured. So basically, she was up a tree. She had sustained injuries, and she went up a tree, and she wasn't moving. And so they just thought that she was dead because she wasn't moving. She's really she was like seventy feet up. So they built a little ladder out of sticks, you know, branches that they found, and they tied a rope around Shabi's waist and looped it around a, a branch, and he climbed up. He's deathly afraid of heights, and he climbs up this tree, and she opens her eyes, and um, she wasn't dead, obviously, and but she had some injuries, and obviously in the wild, it's really challenging to 
confirm exactly where the injuries came from. She had a cut on her finger and uh, a cut kind of on her cheek and on her back. And she'd been up the tree for several days, so she wasn't really getting the nutrients that she needed. So Shopee went up and brought bowls of water with some honey for energy and some uh, medicine for antibiotics um, and electrolytes up and gave that to her. And you know, he called me and told me what was going on. And so I took a emergency flight back real quick and got off the plane and took a, you know, five-hour ride down to the the nature reserve. And then the next morning at 4 a.m., took the kind of three-and-a-half, four-hour drive on this dirt road on the side of a cliff out to uh, this site, hike in, and found her up there. And then Shelby and I, with um, a handful of uh, local reserve workers and some other panda base workers, uh, stayed out there. And um, you're sitting out there and freezing, just watching her all day, just being around her. Our, our, our concern was that something else would come by in her weakened state um, and take advantage of the fact that she was injured. Um, there's a lot of domestic dogs that are either feral or they live in a nearby village that will run out into these reserves. It's a really big challenge all over the world. We were just concerned of anything that could happen. So we'd have somebody there um, at all times watching her, monitoring her. And um, so you're just sitting there and suddenly she, on her own accord, climbs down and that's when we knew she was going to be okay because she had the strength to climb down on her own. She had the desire to climb down on her own and and kind of sat there. And I um, took my rain jacket off because I had a big, you know, kind of ponchoed rain jacket. I took that off and put it on her so she could heat up a little bit uh, while she was eating and drinking. And, and uh, that's when we were kind of all had a moment of relief where we knew that that it was going to be okay. But it was, yeah, it was, it was um, again, it was, Probably the most I did a you know PhD. You think that's really challenging until something like this happens, and then uh, you realize that it's not really that anxiety-inducing and, and stress-inducing. And all of us probably lost like 15 pounds in that time. And um, but again, fortunately, uh, she made it through. And I really do credit the fact that we had a relationship with her, um, the fact that we were able to give her medicine and get her to come out of the tree on her own just by talking with her. Um, that was really, I think, uh, essential to rescuing her and um, giving her the care that she needed. Last word is that Chen Chen is still doing well back in the preserve where she feeds herself naturally and her human caretakers are just awaiting the decision about a possible re-release. It's easy to hear constant wonder. Just download the BYU Radio app be sure to check out other quality podcasts like The Appleseed, In Good Faith, Top of Mind, and The Lisa Show. These are all found on the BYU Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Our website is byuradio.org. That's all for now. Take care.